And a lot of the times you would come across an engineer or a group of engineers that would have a fantastic, a brilliant technology. And maybe management would ask designers to find a use case for it. Um, I'm doing air quotes for the people who are you know, listening. And then I have yet to see that process work, actually, to find a use case for a new technology. Instead, what we are doing today is more like uh, we, when we see a new technology, we are looking at it and we're like, uh, let's try to understand what is under the hood, what makes it tick, what is interesting about it, why is it interesting, maybe run an exploration project around it to, to really uh, go down to the details of it. But then we put it aside, we put it in our backpack. And when we come across a problem that might be a fantastic fit, for that specific technology, then we pick it up again, instead of trying to fit it into whatever hole that is in, in front of us. Hey everyone, welcome to Design Drives Podcast. In this episode, I talk with Birgi Karam, who I actually got to know during my studies at the Human Institute of Design in the very north of Sweden, where he was giving a lot of inspiring and motivating lectures and did a lot of mentoring. Birgi has made incredible experiences working with many outstanding teams throughout his career. For example, working at Sony on consumer electronics, working at Teak in Seattle on aviation projects, and then working later on at Above in Sweden on design consulting, and most recently leading many of the efforts at IKEA. Birgi has always worked on the intersection of physical design and digital design, and this is exactly what we're going to focus on in the episode, the intersection of these two areas, how to design smart home systems, which take into consideration both of these areas, and then how to lead design teams and how to grow yourself as a designer in a world of change and uncertainty. So I hope you enjoy the episode. All right. Thank you so much, Birgi, for taking the time today to join us uh, for an episode. Thank you so much, Sebastian. It's really a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm super excited to speak to you. I mean, we got to know each other to Yume University and uh, you have been doing some really amazing lectures there and you kind know, of got to stay in touch. And I think it's really great to connect with you after all these years. I think, I mean, I know you quite a bit, but I think for the audience, it would be really amazing if you could just give them an introduction about yourself, what you have done in the past, maybe a bit of overview about your design career and how you end up right now at IKEA. Thank you. Thank you so much for the nice words. I think uh, I can start by saying I was born in, in the south of Turkey in, let's say, uh, mid 70s, giving away too much about my age. I'm not that young, but then I, I started and my interest in design very early on. I think uh, it was mostly about like solving problems and bringing parts together, but mostly a lot of curiosity about how things work, how they click, why we like things. And when I realized that everything is designed by someone, at some point I was super interested and I realized that there is a thing called industrial design and that really piqued my interest. So I found out that there was a school, so I attended the school and uh, it was a bit of an adventure going there and uh, understanding what this whole profession is about. Uh, it was in Ankara and the, the capital of Turkey. Then I think it took actually five years to finish the school instead of four, because to be honest, I was a bit lazy. And I had very little self-confidence in terms of my work. But then afterwards, I got a job right away, which really surprised me because I thought that I was a very bad student, meaning that I would be a bad professional. Then I did some more design, industrial design. But I also learned a lot about the old tricks of the trade, you can say. 
because I was working at a heating cooling company in there, working with almost everything, like uh, from packaging design to industrial design, I did the surfacing myself and interface design, like, uh, you know, segmented LCD displays all the way to color and material matching. And it was super fun. And then I got to learn quite a lot, but then I realized maybe it's not enough. So I wanted to study even more. So came to Sweden, to Umeå, and studied advanced product design, as, as it's called, and think that I had one leg in the interaction design side uh, all the way from the beginning. And I had a really hard time deciding between those two. And that kind of, that indecisiveness followed me through the rest of my life, you can say. So then I had the different adventures at uh, Sony Ericsson and then Sony Mobile later designing uh, a lot of phones and accessories. And then at Sieg, working towards passenger and, and crew experiences on wide body jets for Boeing. And then at Above, starting a digital design team from scratch. And then now at IKEA doing uh, almost the same thing, but still working with physical and digital at the same time. So that's me in a nutshell. Yeah, super great. And I think it's great that, I mean, you always had this kind of interest in both the physical and the digital side. And I think now again at IKEA, you try to bring these two things together, right? So how, how was it throughout your career? I mean, did you always had the chance to keep the balance of both of these things or was it sometimes where you had the feeling now I'm getting very disconnected to digital design or and maybe in other parts of your career where you said, oh, oh it seems like I'm really like uh, leaving, you know, physical design. Really good question. I think at, uh, at some point for, I spent eight years at, uh, at Sony in, in total. And there, like uh, we were designing phone after phone, uh, to be honest, maybe I realized at some point what is happening inside the confines of the screen is much more interesting and impactful for the user than what we are really spending time on the corner radius and the color and you know how the glasses come together on the on edges and, and everything so i really started to work with a lot of vision projects that kind of try to deliver more of this experience a little bit more upfront you can say and there i think the transition started from there and i think that sony at some point i was doing you can say a little bit too much physical, but I also donned the hat of for a while. People started calling me Mr. Walkman because I was working with the Walkman phones that always, you know, had a very fair share of innovative form factors and innovative form factors require innovative interfaces. And that really brought me close to digital and started to work with the people that are working on that side more and more. And at the end, I think my decision to transition to Teague was quite interesting because I realized that I can actually work more with in experiences that actually happen in physical space, but through enablers that come from digital world. And that really has been a quite an interesting, I would say, catalyst to going there. Because when I actually accepted the job at Teague, I thought that I would be working less with experiences, but maybe a little bit more with interior. But I kind of, I think I shaped the job a little bit myself, you can say. And at the end, ended up with a small, inofficial team, you can say, that worked with purely experiences. And we had to invent a lot of things from scratch because there was no framework for it. And I had the amazing support from our creative director and uh, all of the uh, managers in making this happen. And afterwards, I think when I was at Above, it was mostly about um, being involved in maybe early on strategy towards companies that either had purely digital operations 
but wants to do something physical or vice versa. And that, that in itself where, you know, things really started to go into one another. I can say. I think what is super interesting, what you just mentioned, is the aspect that physical design could enable digital experiences, right? And I made similar experiences. Could you maybe talk about that a bit more? Maybe you have specific examples or anything that comes to your mind where kind of how these two sides could influence each other and sometimes the physical side could be an enabler for a new digital experience? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that Internet of Things is a playground, right? In the very beginning, I think we started just thinking about, oh, what happens if you could connect this thing to the internet? And it, it started to make more sense recently, I would say. In the very beginning, it didn't necessarily make sense. But uh, some of the very early experiences with this that I had was like, we're talking about uh, making a dimmer for the home. And uh, that was one of the first products that I, uh, my projects, you can say, for IKEA, where We designed a dimmer that is basically like, it's just a pot and it has no moving parts functioning. And it's just working through a gyro and an accelerometer that just detects the movement. And it looks and acts like a normal dimmer that you would have on your wall, but you can just have it with you. And it has no, let's say, no rotary encoder or anything like that. It's just what it is. It is that product. And I think that's an interesting embodiment of uh, the whole enabler is digital but it is super encapsulated and hidden behind the outside. That's uh, as a user, when it works well, you don't even realize that uh, there is a digital aspect to it. You just feel like, okay, I'm using a dimmer in its, in its best cases. And I think that has been a very interesting project for uh, almost everybody involved. And that was the wireless dimmer for, for IKEA that I worked on. That I think it was, um, I can also say like uh, that also marks a very interesting era for my career where I really understood the importance of an algorithm into how a product is being experienced, even if it's something seemingly very, very simple. I, I mean, you could almost say like, like the complexity is not even visible to the user, right? So like all the concepts, ideas, the kind of the use cases and kind of like the principles of outcomes, they're all hidden in this very simple object and, and interaction, right? But there's a lot of thinking around, around that, right? I think it's very interesting. Yes. When it comes to your process, you know, combining physical and digital design, how does that process work for you? The process, I think a lot of the processes, I feel like can be generalized into maybe exploration, experimentation and execution. I mean, it's an oversimplification, but I think it works maybe 80% of the cases. And a lot of our process looks like this. We try to ask, try, see, build, measure, learn, and then execute at the end. And you might be subscribing to a completely you know, waterfall or an agile process. You might be very religiously doing Scrum, but I think I think uh, almost never fails to approach it like this. But when you combine physical and digital, there are some fundamental differences. Like for when you're shipping a physical product, there is an end date where you have to pack this thing in boxes and you no longer can play with the firmware. And it is what it is. If it's an internet enabled product, you know, the first time it is unboxed, it can connect to the internet and update itself. But you can't necessarily count on it. I mean, in our case, we have a lot of products that might not be connected to the internet ever and we have to think about that in the pure digital process you are counting on a very frequent update so it's a little bit tough to reconcile these two processes together especially the cadence is quite different 
so you can't necessarily and then on, on the other hand also in in the area of smart home there is also a different software projects if you will like there's the firmware there's the gateway there's the cloud and there's integrations and, and they all have different cadence security limitations and when it comes together really looks like a very very complicated like spaghetti kind of chaos uh, but uh, you have to as a leader make sense out of that and uh, make sure that there's actionable points in each way and each week maybe each day and that's one of the challenges but it's also what makes it exciting and interesting i see yeah absolutely i think you're pointing out some really really interesting aspects i think one of the things that i would be very curious about is like how do you align it from the timeline perspective almost you already said like on the physical side you're going to have a, a due date after that you could not you can't change anything anymore right it's not like on the interface i can still adjust the radius on the physical one it's done right so it's going to be shipped Right. So I also all the interaction elements, for example, placed into this physical elements have to be considered. They have to be considered even for the long run a little bit because, you know, I may be cutting myself short in terms of the physical enablers I have in the product when I, you know, for example, will launch a software update at a later point. I can't now update this product anymore because it doesn't have that hinge I wanted. <laughs> But that comes in the next release. So I was just wondering, how do you kind of structure that? And is it that on the digital side, you have to think further ahead because you have to think about the physical requirements and what the physical element has to enable? I think I would almost say like happy side effects of this whole phenomena is that as designers, you have to be much more aware of the limitations of the technology. But also there are, let's say, super tiny switches that you can turn on and off in the very early in the process when you're doing the first, first, first architecture of a whole new platform. And as a designer, you need to understand the technology much more than, than a typical, say, a traditional a process uh, would require so that you can understand, okay, if we have this switch down the line, we won't be able to have such such feature and that is a quite a challenge and that's why we're also like sometimes some of our designers have the assignment of uh, being a ux architect which you don't see very much in in a lot of other places because you really need to be able to foresee the impacts of these tiny you know micro decisions they might be down the line and we also maybe develop some coping mechanisms or some ways of uh, dealing with this such as we work with principles quite a lot and we derive principles from the mistakes that we have done and one of the principles that we have is uh, the escalator principle which basically says like if you have imagine an escalator when even when it fails, it is still a set of staircase, basically. And so we are designing our products like that. So even, for example, if you lose the remote control to a you know, smart light bulb, it becomes a dumb light bulb, and you can still use the light switch. And this is like a super tiny, tiny thing uh, that you have to think about very much on the architecture level, on the software architecture, even like a platform architecture level, and really hard to foresee. And I cannot say that we can foresee all of this, these things and we haven't solved everything, uh, but we're trying our best to be able to do it properly. Super interesting. Yeah, you have to think about the fallback, right? So like what is the kind of baseline functionality and experience that it can offer at any time, right? And how I build, how I do a stack up on, on top of it, right? To offer, for example, a better experience. Super interesting. 
So, I mean, another aspect, obviously, is technology itself, right? So, I mean, we have a technolo technological innovation, right? So how do you try to, is that also part of the conversation? How do you balance that with your process, thinking about what you want to do in the long run, maybe on an interaction side, but then you also have to consider technology aspects as well and maybe things that maybe enabler that come from a from an engineering and a technical side? That's a really interesting question. That's the question that I asked myself so many times. And it is maybe at some point in life, I was working a lot with innovative projects and especially at Sony like because of the, the way that the company is structured and everything, like innovation is everything and progress is everything. And a lot of the times you would come across an engineer or a group of engineers that would have a fantastic, a brilliant technology. And maybe management would ask designers to find a use case for it. Um, I'm doing air quotes for the people who are you know, listening. And then I have yet to see that process work, actually, to find a use case for a new technology. Instead, what we are doing today is more like uh, we, when we see a new technology, we are looking at it and we're like, uh, let's try to understand what is under the hood, what makes it tick, what is interesting about it? Why is it interesting? Maybe run an exploration project around it to, to really uh, go down to the details of it. But then we put it aside. We put it in our backpack. And when we come across a problem that might be a fantastic fit for that specific technology, then we pick it up again instead of trying to fit it into whatever hole that is in, in front of us. That we found, I think that also reflects the spirit of IKEA <laughs> Uh, currently, but I also found that it's pretty well in, in other organizations as well. Yeah, absolutely. You want to uh, come from the user first, right? But then you have it in your backpack so you can pull it out as a potential solution, right? So yeah, super interesting. So another thing I, another thing is potentially challenging is, I guess, like user research and market uh, research when it comes to smart home experiences, right? Because you have to really set it up for people and, you know, get their feedback and prototype it, everything kind of in a room or in an experience. And it's also there's this aspect of habits as well. So maybe people have a hard time, right? Maybe they see a functional element that could work very well, but, or they, they you know, you, because some of the things or some of the use cases maybe are incorporated into habits, right? So is this, uh, because a lot of things actually at home, they happen automatically. People have certain habits in terms of how they're doing things. So just maybe in more general, how do you do user and, and market research when it comes to use cases and scenarios and design solutions you come up with? We are very curious about how people live. I mean, and that is in, ingrained in our everyday and in our culture as well. So curiosity about life at home is what drives us most of the time 100 percent and uh, that also includes how they interact with their current home so we are not there to change their habits if they are not willing to and we are very mindful of this like today in the smart home you can see that you can see a lot of like smart home enthusiasts trying to maybe change the habit of the whole household like okay stop using the wall switch or stop doing this and uh, okay now the blinds are automatic you don't touch them and we see this in our research every day, but we're also wondering where is the point of reconciliation between these two, like uh, like habits and uh, and newness that that can actually make something much better and much easier for everybody. And that's why we are working with these kind of products that uh, are, for example, the shortcut button, 
It's just a button that has like, you can put whatever drawing underneath you want. And maybe the person that can program that can program it in a way that it does like uh, a lot of things at the same time. You just hit this button and maybe it's your morning routine, or maybe you can just assign it for a, a, to a certain playlist in the morning. So every time you uh, press it, it just uh, starts playing a coffee house uh, playlist. So on. And you can have multiples of these. So we're also like very curious about how we, can we help people to have better habits that save them time, save them money, save them energy, and, and different things. But we are also very aware that we are in a business of maybe habit-changing kind of products. But it's not like, for example, when you look at exercise and, or similar things where you, know, you want to increase the well-being of people. Maybe it's a little bit uh, different than that. So we have to understand how people live to be able to suggest them uh, slight nudges that can make their life a little bit better, a little bit easier. Yeah, I mean, super interesting. Actually, the first episodes of Design Drive was with Cheryl Plutz, who was actually the first designer, one of the first designers on Amazon Echo team. And they have to come up with these different use cases for smart home devices, right? As it was basically one of the first smart home products. And it was very interesting to hear about the prototyping process and how they used role play as a way to kind of evaluate if certain scenarios make sense from a user experience perspective. So it was not even a building AI or any of that in the very beginning. It was just understanding, does that interaction make sense for me in my everyday life? Does it feel awkward? Does it feel like I have to force myself to ask this to an intelligent machine or does it actually help me? So what kind of scenarios make sense for people? What are the kind of key use cases? And they, do, they did role play for that to kind of play it out before they actually went uh, into, you know, doing the AI and all of these uh, technical things. And I think this was very interesting because you could play it out almost in different rooms, right? You have a bathroom, you're trying to play out a morning scenario. What would you say now to that device? Try to play it out for yourself. So I'm wondering a little bit about the prototyping process when it comes to smart home experience. Do you have any kind of similar experience when it, uh, when it comes to you in terms of like role play, for example, as a tool for, for prototyping or how do you try to do that? I think that, that that sounds like, I mean, that that story is very, let's say, interesting because how do you prototype something that never existed before? And I think in those uh, situations, we're also, I also joke with the team sometimes, like we are reinventing the process every time or we are inventing a new process every time. We are inventing new methods, new methodologies. Otherwise, there is no like playbook for a lot of the things that we are dealing with. Smart home and IoT is still in its infancy. One of the things that I find quite uh, helpful also for myself and also for, for anybody that would work with this is like things like body storming, really understanding because the digital interfaces and the digital things that like the, all those zeros and ones have an impact on the real life. So if you can simulate that somehow, like uh, if you have a phone in your hand, you usually have to use maybe the dexterity of your dominant hand fully. And that leaves you with your indominant hand uh, trying to do something else. So if you're working through a pairing process or, or an onboarding process, or like you can be on top of stairs, for example, if you need to press multiple buttons at the same time. I really encourage everybody to, to look into like what is happening in real life all the time when you are you know, designing your interface because the, the confines of these like uh, rectangular glossy 
display is very, very fun and it's very shiny and it's exciting. But people have a life, you know, babies are crying, phones are ringing, you know, fires are happening, th things are falling down. And so people have to lock your app and to go to do something else. And what is happening meanwhile, I think to be able to understand all of these things, it's really important to, to be able to, let's say, pre-empathize the users before you, you can make mistakes. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And it, you could almost say that inclusivity are basically an enabler for innovation or like uh, basically a creative input for innovation. Because as you said, we life is not perfect. You have different things going around. Like maybe you just have one inter hand available for the interaction. Maybe you try to do something in the sink and uh, don't have your hands available at all, right? And, you know, incorporating that kind of lens to scenario building, I think that could greatly, I think, influence creativity, I assume, when it comes to the, the brainstorming and coming up with different use cases, right? Definitely. I also, I can connect this back to even my days with uh, mobile technologies and mobile phones. I don't know if uh, anybody remembers, but once upon a time, phones did not have an on-off button. Uh, you were actually turning off the phone by, you know, uh, or locking the phone by long pressing the back button most of the time. And I a lot of people did not realize this, but that meant that you had to leave what you were doing behind. So there was no multitasking between what you were doing digitally and what you were doing physically. So when you get back to unlock the phone, it was the, the home screen. And as the phones became more and more advanced, this became more and more of a problem. So when I was working with more like very early smartphones, we realized that, my God, we need an on-off button. Otherwise, you have to just uh, go back to that app and maybe the memory was not enough and uh, you, know, you got kicked out of what, what you were doing. So life is much more important than whatever app that you're working with most of the time unless you're working with something mission critical. So I would also say that, you know, the body storming or maybe sometimes, you know, video prototyping, you know, these kind of uh, techniques are quite important in, in understanding. And I think that what you described before the, with some people call it the Wizard of Oz uh, prototyping, that also helped quite a lot in terms of understanding how people feel and what their attitude is towards a certain technology or some innovation, I think. Yeah, uh, super interesting. Basically, looking at what you're building now up at IKEA, you're basically saying you're building up uh, a team there, right? Another thing, I think there's an interesting conversation going around design disciplines and different kind of skill sets of designers when it comes to building these very complex designs, right? Where we have physical, we have digital, yeah, I mean, they're everything comes together you have audio you have multi-sensor experiences basically and i mean also things like service design i think probably relevant there because you have to stitch it together somehow into an, an customer experience so there's definitely an element of complexity and i'm wondering a little bit what are the different kind of skill sets of designers you're looking looking for when you kind of assemble a team that could kind of um, deal with these challenges Uh, and deal with the different aspects that you have to tackle when it comes to a smart home experience. That part is very interesting because when industrial design was just industrial design, you can say everybody was an industrial designer and some people called themselves like uh, maybe specialists like, okay, transportation designer or uh, some people called themselves furniture designer. But there were very few number of specializations. But uh, today there is quite a lot. Like in my 
point of view. It was very interesting when we started this team, the first hire was a UX researcher, which was an amazing level of maturity that, uh, that, that I had in hindsight. Uh, I didn't really think about it much back then. Uh, but then the second uh, was a business designer. And we are more and more aware that the front end of the process is super important in shaping the rest of it. And these two are extremely important disciplines that really bring the voice of the user, the, the voice of the customer, the voice of the, the whole market into the mix before you start even drawing rectangles on a screen or uh, making mockups uh, in a 3D printer. But I also think that uh, you know we expanded the team later with UX designers and visual designers, but now I think one of the most interesting hires now um, is a design technologist, which is basically a bridge between design and technology. Maybe it's more of a designer than a technologist, but I do believe that it is a very crucial bridge that cannot be replaced with any meeting, really, because you're talking about a person that can use prototyping as a super powerful tool that can uh, make anything that you're talking about tangible in a matter of days, maybe sometimes hours. And then that cuts a lot of theoretical decisions quite short and makes them super practical. And you understand the implications of your decisions. Like I told, well, like I said before, you know, sometimes some decisions are super hard to foresee in terms of their impacts. So you're making that much more tangible by having a design technologist in the, in the mix. And I also believe that like service designers have a very interesting tool set of understanding what human aspect means when it comes to designing a system. Uh, so that is also very, very valuable. And uh, maybe one of the most underrated but crucial roles is UX writer because everything that you do has to have some kind of a verbal expression that is tied to it. If it's on an app or if it's a, you know, maybe a user manual or something like that. And the wrong word might, might show you the wrong way fundamentally that might actually push the user down a spiral that they can never get out of. So I do feel like very important. But uh, these are all, you know, UX professionals. I also think that uh, we owe ourselves to build very, very strong relationships with uh, people like product owners and engineers and uh, marketers and communicators, which usually most of the time in our process, we oversimplify uh, the relationship between different professions. But I do think that we have to embrace the complexity and uh, try to bring everybody in. And the inclusion is not only inclusive design, but it's also inclusion in the workplace. That also brings a lot of richness, I think, to the discussions. Yeah, inclusion in, in, in the process, right? Super interesting. And I, I can also see that, you know, uh, definitely see what you are pointing out there when it comes to the different designers, especially I think design technologists must be quite critical, specifically for quick prototyping of the different things. And the tools just get better basically every year, right? And it's getting more and more simpler to, you know, to build these things and the frameworks get better basically every year. So I think that's super interesting. I mean, I would really like to, maybe as a last question in regards of the smart home aspect, what do you think are kind of the 
future challenges, but then also opportunities when it comes to the smart home space? Another good question. I would say some aspects of the smart home makes me feel very optimistic and excited. And some other aspects are also, let's say, okay, I'm thinking about things that we have to solve along the way. And of course, as a part of journey, I feel responsible for solving those. But uh, I do feel like we are in a transition period. We have to recognize that first and foremost. A lot of the smart home solutions that we have today are what you would call retrofit. We have smart bulbs because we don't have like smart switches and we have uh, a lot of uh, things that, for example, you don't have smart windows so you bring in smart blinds and and so on i think maybe the difference between let's say a phone and the smartphone has disappeared so quickly maybe in a matter of half a decade one might argue but the difference between a home and the smart home will not disappear that fast because we don't discard homes every year or year and a half so it's going to take a very long time to do the full transition and until that transition is complete you can say Uh, we're going to have to rely on a lot of uh, retrofit. And that means a a mishmash of different brands and and the compatibility issues maybe. And uh, maybe it's all growing pain. But I also feel like companies are maturing. We are growing. We are understanding what the users want rather than what technology wants. Because technology just wants progress. Maybe technology does not want to be meaningful. Um, But uh, people need the technology to be meaningful for their lives, uh, to be understandable and to be respectful to both people and planet. And that's what we are trying to uh, maybe insert in our everyday life. Like you are aware of where you are in the overall process. Maybe you can do the progress a little bit easier. I mean, another aspect that's probably there important, I think, is culture, right? I mean, you also have the element that spaces are very different in different cultures as well right so you have to think about that as well because i mean even a kitchen setup is so different when it comes to in in india versus in europe versus in the us right so i think that's kind of interesting and i really like what you're pointing out there is that you know like the change is not happening so quick so you have to work in a kind of mixed environment where some of the spaces are further and maybe some more intelligent more enabled and others are not right and then you have to think about you know how does it fit in there and the change is happening slower right you have products that kind of change quicker maybe even a calm transforms or let's say um, transformation change is happening maybe even quicker than in the space where people change that even or upgrade things even slower than even mobility aspects right and then you have basically cities which are even slower right? this is where the slowest kind of base could you could design for so super interesting how did you think the experience at teak where you worked a lot on aviation experiences right which are kind of also space design if you want to describe it that way how did they prepare you for basically projects and, and roles at IKEA? I think one of the most interesting things were the discipline around understanding experiences and being like making the, the experiences or the, the, the understanding process is a humbling process. Like understanding the complexity of such a thing, because, you know, my creative director at Teague used to call the airplane a flying building uh, with all the plumbing and electricity and, and and everything and I really love that and if you think about it like that it is a home really and uh, sometimes for eight hours or 12 hours or two hours that little space that uh, you get like uh, quite expensive uh, seats is your home and you are nesting like micro nesting for a very short period of time 
and you are a captive audience. The only place that you can look is in front of you. And uh, it, it's very, you know, confining. And for example, the perception of light changes, the perception of taste changes, like all of the five senses are impacted by being high up and being confined. But at the same time, I would say like, there's also practical aspects that, that really impacted me. One thing is that I stopped maybe saying important too much when I was talking about design, because when you're talking about planes, important means something pretty specific. So you can't really waste that word on, for example, passenger comfort, to be honest, uh, when you're talking about the design of a plane. And on the other side, like I learned a lot about lighting and the impact of lighting on human psyche and even like the perception of time and circadian rhythms and, and so on. But I would say the most important thing that I learned is how to understand the, the cycle of uh, understanding the, the journey from start to finish. For example, if you take the journey, user journey of going on a plane, you can say that it starts from like a you going through the plane door and leaving through the plane door. But in fact, it starts by you starting to plan a vacation and it ends when you actually unpack and maybe start doing your laundry from your dirty stuff. So really appreciating the, the complexity and the halo effect of experiences was a, a very good learning for me. Super interesting, super interesting. Yeah, and you, you have to think about all these different sensors, like you were saying, and there's some really interesting projects like you're pointing out how the light is changing, particularly on certain scenarios of your flight to create a certain experience. Yeah, I think this is super interesting. Maybe as the last question, what, I mean, you have been reinventing yourself in your career quite often, right? You had different roles, sometimes more physical, sometimes more digital, right? And you were going to new spaces like aviation or no smart home. And I think this is true to the, the role of designers more and more that you have to kind of keep reinventing yourself and the change is, is happening the transformation is all around you so you have to deal with that as a designer right you, it's not that you learn something after you study and you're done you're set for 60 years that's not, this doesn't exist right so i'm wondering a little bit what would be your advice for designers to keep reinventing themselves and to keep up with the change that is that is happening i would say that if you don't understand that learning is life, then I think design is a very, very tough profession to deal with. You're going to have to learn new things all the time. And if you have any resistance against that, I think it's, it's a very hellish dream to be a designer. But also, I will give away my, my age now a little bit, talking about like when we were, uh, when I was studying bachelor uh, to be an industrial designer, they did not allow us to uh, use computers to 3D model things because they thought that we have to learn sketching and uh, doing perspective, like three-point perspective with hand and, and all of that. And uh, we've done, we done it anyway. We you know, find 3D modeling uh, software, uh, piloted it, and you know, come hell or high water, we found a way to uh, do it ourselves. And I think that the people who are maybe more interesting are understanding this fact that learning is a privilege and learning is something that that you do maybe every waking hour and if you maybe understand this fact 
then I think you, you can definitely understand how to be an, a designer and how to evolve because um, the technology is evolving, but even if it if it's not evolving, like research techniques are evolving. And even if research techniques are not evolving, humans are evolving. You know, we're having pandemics and we're having climate change and, and different things are. Uh, so if you're not aware of many of these things, I don't think that it will be super fun to, to design things for the realities. Yeah, super, super interesting what you're saying. I, I mean, uh, learning is life, especially true for designers. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I think you're also I think there's this openness aspect as well that I mean, this was I think you were pointing out your education there, right? I mean, I kind of got to know that as well, when it came to sketching, for example, and like, there were these first digital sketching methods, right? And then there was this conversation where right? should we keep stick to the paper or how about this new thing with digital sketching? Is this a future or not, right? I mean, and nowadays you need to embrace that as well, right? You need to embrace the change and, and kind of be open towards uh, that and, and, and see how you can make it work for you. I think that's an, an important element as well. So yeah, I, I think I would love to continue talking to you here in the, the episode. Uh, it's super interesting insights you have been sharing. So, but I think we need to close and wrap up the recording here. So thank you so much, Birgit. This has been absolutely amazing. The same for me. Thank you, Sebastian. Always a pleasure. Thank you. All right, that was the episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure you give it a thumbs up. Let me know in the comments about taking me in the polls. What were the biggest learnings for you in the episode? I'm always super curious about that. If the episode provides you a lot of value, make sure to follow and subscribe and share it with friends or others so they also have the chance to learn and grow themselves. Alright, until next time. Cheers.